Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, 11 European governments are mandating that research gets published in open access journals. So this would immediately rule out, as it stands, 85% of journals. So what are we going to do about that? And could the future of manufacturing optical fiber be in space? I think definitely we're going to be seeing more made-in-space capabilities that make our current means seem almost archaic and primitive. But first, social media platforms are in the docks again, getting grilled by politicians in Washington, D.C. But how to regulate them is the bigger question. To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Gary Epstein, The Economist media editor, who's been writing about it for this week's paper. Hello, Gaddy. Hello, Ken. How have the big tech platforms been shielded from liability for the content they carry? Right. So since 1996, uh, the Communications Decency Act has protected them under Section 230, which basically says that they're not to be held responsible, or internet services are not to be held responsible for content that they carry basically over their wires or that is published on their platforms. Now, this is before the existence of any of these social media platforms, and it was, it was a law meant to protect you know, internet service providers and allow them to be intermediaries without being sued. And it was also to encourage them to be good citizens about policing their content. So the social media companies inherited that protection. And so why is that broken down? Why do people want to change it now? Well, the idea behind it was that you give them a shield, politicians would put it this way, and uh, they use their discretion and responsibility to keep their platforms clean. And the view in Capitol Hill is that they haven't held up their part of the bargain. They've allowed election interference, they're not protecting data, there's fake news spreading all throughout their platforms, there is a demand for accountability. And so what might that accountability look like? What would new rules be like? Well, it's possible they could lose their uh, special protection. And it's unclear what would happen at that point and how uh, a new kind of regime would look. They're certainly going to be under more scrutiny. I'm sure the tech companies are going to try and come up with proposals about how they can better self-regulate. And beyond that, I think we're speculating there could be, who knows, external oversight of some sort. There'll be a lot of resistance, though, to politicians getting involved in regulating these companies. Why should that be the case? It seems like Donald Trump is always on Twitter. People want him to be more activist. Well, I'm not so sure everybody would agree that we want Donald Trump to be more activist. I'm sure some people would like him to be a lot less activist. I think a lot of people would like uh, the tech platforms to do a better job of being stewards of what goes on on their platforms. But what comes with combating fake news with combating hate speech is also the specter of censorship. 
And this is, of course, the argument that comes from companies like Facebook and YouTube. And there is a lot of sympathy for that. If you can imagine regulating one of these companies in an authoritarian environment, like in China, then you basically have limited freedom of expression online. That is worrying. So what does sensible middle-of-the-road regulation look like, and are the companies willing to adhere to it? I don't think we have an answer yet on what sensible regulation looks like. I don't think we have an answer yet on what is the proper way to even police these platforms and how, where they should draw the line. These are thorny questions that basically we've never had to face before. I mean, Facebook is everything from where you share your baby photos to where conspiracy theories spread about crisis actors and school shootings. The breadth of what is dealt with on platforms like Facebook and YouTube is something that is a new challenge that we have yet to come up with a philosophical framework that is sufficient to address it. And do you think that the metaphors that we use, like the printing press or the postal service, the telephone, do those beguile us in some ways because they're so inapt? I do think it's sort of, you know, we're in a turbocharged new environment. I mean, it is true that every time there's been a new development in communications, it has led to upheaval and it's taken decades or even centuries to adjust in the case of the printing press and to come up with new norms. We don't have the liberty of decades or centuries. Everything moves uh, at the speed of light. And we've seen what happens with the network effects on these platforms across 2 billion users. That's fascinating. Gaddy, thank you so much. Good to be with you, Ken. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up, open access scientific publishing. Around the world, there's been a huge movement in favor of open access publishing. It's the idea that scientific research shouldn't go into proprietary journals like Science and Nature, but in fact go into journals that don't charge so anyone can buy them and read the content. Lately, funding agencies have thought about whether they should require that the research that they fund go only into open access journals. And just this week, 11 European governments have mandated that the research do get published in open access and only open access form. Here to discuss that with me is Anano Bhattacharya, our science correspondent. Hello, Ananya. Hi, Ken. So my first question is, describe exactly what open access publishing is. Yeah, so the history of open access, uh, the open access movement goes back uh, two or three decades. And I guess the central idea of it is that the general public are paying for scientific research to happen, yet the results of this scientific research is being published in journals, in private hands, behind paywalls. So often scientists and the general public, as it happens, but, but scientists are the particular problem, can sometimes not access these results. Now, what happened just this week? So this week, uh, more or less out of the blue, a body called Science Europe, which uh, represents a lot of funding agencies across Europe, came out with a plan called Plan S. As you said, 11 countries, including the United Kingdom, France and the Netherlands, have signed up to uh, this plan that Science Europe outlines uh, called Plan S. And that would see all researchers that are funded in these countries by national funding agencies have to publish in open access journals by 2020. So an incredibly short space of time for the transition. Now, is this just an idea or is this now a new rule of sorts? 
Well, the people that have signed up to it have the power to make it a rule. Uh, these are the funders. So scientists who receive grants from these bodies will have to abide by their rules. Now, if they say that by 2020, this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, there is talk of a transition period, but it sounds from the document that that will be quite short. Now, I can imagine that there's many scientists who are cheering this issue because now they can access research cheaply. But there's probably going to be some other scientists who are going to be alarmed because there's a lot of prestige to be in journals like Science and Nature and others. So there's a whole welter of issues that often publishers raise, but yeah, some scientists are concerned about too. So this would immediately rule out, as it stands, 85% of journals, including the really big names like Science and Nature. So what are we going to do about that? The intriguing thing is that the plan also rules out so-called hybrid models. And these are journals that allow you, if you pay a fee, to publish your work in an open access format, but by and large, the rest of the stuff remains behind a paywall. Under Plan S, those hybrid journals are, are no-go. Is the policy too draconian? In my opinion, no. Two years seems a remarkably short time, but I think those who advocate for open access, or at least that scientific type findings should be open to all, have, um, have waited a very long time for mandates to toughen up. There are all sorts of things that have been tried, gentle nudges and so on. Two or three decades have passed, in which time a whole movement, a whole open access movement has sort of flourished and new journals have appeared that are open access. Uh, I think many feel that this has been a long time coming. That's great. I don't know. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ken. So what are your thoughts on open publishing or on the regulation of social platforms? Tell us in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, manufacturing in space. What has often been treated as a plot for science fiction is now becoming a reality. No, it's not mining on Mars, but something a little closer to home and a bit more practical. Two Californian firms are proposing to manufacture optical fiber of extremely high quality in the microgravity conditions of the International Space Station. To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Jennifer Lopez, the Commercial Innovation Technology Development Lead at the Center for the Advancement for Science in Space, which is a part of NASA. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. So let's talk about fiber optics. Why is space such an ideal place to make the stuff? So fiber optics, you know, or at least in terms of the exotic forms of, of fiber optics, such as ZBLAN, are unfortunately plagued by gravity. Fiber optic uh, manufacturing can be made on Earth, of course, as we've seen traditionally, but the process is traditionally very expensive, tricky. Uh, the results can be poor. Um, uh, we like to call it terrestrially produced fiber. So grown under the effects of gravity, it can suffer from various impurities, and those impurities can contribute, or the impacts of that can contribute to scattering, uh, absorption uh, losses, and the reduction of overall quality in terms of fiber optics. So the idea is to see if we can manufacture this material in greater amounts, or to see if we could start with uh, the material um, initially to demonstrate some of these reductions in absorption losses and microcrystal formations in a microgravity environment. And that would then lead to more pure 
of forms of this material. And so what are some of the other sorts of materials that could benefit from being manufactured in a zero-gravity environment? So other potential materials that could that could benefit from a microgravity environment, as I mentioned before, where we are investigating a number of different multi-materials, alloys, that could have benefits for the semiconductor industry, metals industry. We have a number of Fortune 50 companies that are engaging investigations with us currently uh, that are interested in this work. We are also excited to uh, to launch a, a 3D biofabrication facility to enable 3D bioprinting of heart and car- cardiac tissue, uh, human tissue, to the International Space Station uh, very soon. So that is going to be another capability that we're going to be seeing as well. And why would we want to print organs in space rather than on Earth? So similar to fiber optics with 3D bioprinting, the main challenge is that that plagued gravity. It's that the gravity vector. So in order to build structures, when we were talking about cardiac tissue, the nutrients and the stem cell uh, mixtures within bioinks, which is the basis for 3D bioprinting, needs to be at a high liquid uh, consistency. And there's no way to achieve this on Earth, at least not without some form of scaffolding uh, to support the ink. And scientists have yet to figure out a way to remove that scaffolding completely without damaging the structures of the completed organ. So theoretically, 3D bioprinting in space changes the game completely. And by removing gravity from the equation, uh, sedimentation and, and scaffold collapse can be theoretically eliminated. This is so interesting. So do you think that we're going to have made in space as a label of origin in the coming years? Yes, I think definitely we're going to be seeing more made in space capabilities as space becomes more commercialized, as we are bringing more access to the International Space Station and future orbiting platforms. Costs of launching materials into orbit becomes less and less expensive. We'll see more of these technology advancements, newer methods of of manufacturing and production that make our current means seem almost archaic and primitive. Uh, Businesses will have more opportunities for increased profits. Entire new industries will be created, ultimately bringing the value uh, and impact of why we created the International Space Station back to our economy and to the nation. So very exciting to see that we're just at the beginning stages or early stages of this new era of manufacturing in space. Jennifer Lopez, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you like our journalism, don't forget, wait, it's not a subscription offer. We'd like to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please go to radio.economist.com slash survey, and then you can subscribe. In London, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and this is The Oh. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.